Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is something we take great pride in with the leadership of Michael McKee, Bloomberg Economics and Policy Directive, also worst questioner of Jerome Powell that we know. And that is they are not just Fed presidents or Fed governors, but they are real people with true expertise. Patrick Harker is truly extraordinary and a voice for technology at the Fed. He is definitive in operations research. He holds the youngest endowed professorship at Wharton in their history. And all I can say, Mike, is when the Fed needs to understand technology and productivity, this is the guy they turn to. Well, let's turn to Patrick Harker ourselves. Uh, and we should mention that along with everything else on your resume there, you are a voting member of the Open Market Committee as an alternate for the vacant Boston seat at the present time. So uh, Tom does have to pay attention to what you have to say today. Let me start was, off. He, I, I don't agree with him on the questioning of Jay Powell. So, you know, <laughs> we'll start with that. All right. Well, now I can take it out on you. Uh, Mary Daly, very firm yesterday. We are not behind the curve. Do you agree? Look, there are risks on both sides. I mean, let's step back. I think it's worth a step back and say, why do we have inflation running the way it's running? Two things, supply and demand. Uh, the demand is something we can influence through monetary policy, the supply constraints, people and goods, uh, less so. In, in fact, very little uh, can we do about that. Two things are happening at the same time. So the question is how quickly, and this has always been the question, how quickly are the supply chain constraints going to leave us? And it looks right now like they're not, they're going to take some time. So slowing down some demand is what monetary policy does. I think it's appropriate. I don't think we're behind the curve in that sense because we don't affect a big part of why there is inflation. That said, I do think we need to move now uh, to try to control inflation. That is something I firmly believe. Well, move now, but then move how often after that and how fast? Yeah. Uh, the, you know the questions yeah. out there, the 50 basis points in March, uh, the seven uh, rate increases proposed by Bank of America. Uh, where do you come down on that? So let me, again, let me step back from it. So we're going to stop the tapering in March. I would be supportive of 25 basis point increase in March. Could we do 50? Yeah. Uh, should we? Well, I'm a little less uh, convinced of that right now, but we'll see how the data turn out in the next couple of weeks. And then when we're sufficiently away from zero, we can argue what above zero is, 125 basis points, 100 basis points. Then we start normalizing the balance sheet, start bringing the balance sheet down, which of course will also reduce accommodation. So it's really a, a two-step process here. Uh, yes, we want to increase the Fed funds rate, which is our primary tool of monetary policy. At the same time, we want to start removing accommodation by shrinking the balance sheet. Both things have to happen in tandem, in my mind. Let's step into March and then build on your comments on the balance sheet, President Harker. On March, tell me the data that you are looking at, the data that will influence and shape that decision. A lot of people de-emphasizing Friday's payrolls print. We would all love a deeper understanding of whether you will look at that how you would process yeah. that information, given the Omicron scare as well. And additionally, the data you'd be looking at going into the March call. 
Yeah, so you know, I heard some of the comment uh, earlier from some of your uh, colleagues or tweet people who have tweeted about maximum employment. I think we're there. So really, this is an inflation story in my mind. And so what we're looking at is the signs that inflation, at least the precursors to inflation, like the supply chain issues, are starting to mitigate. If I don't see that, then I would be for a more aggressive policy. Right now, I think four 25 basis point increases this year is appropriate. But there's a lot of risk here. There's risk both to the upside of inflation, that is worse than, uh, than I would anticipate. But there's also some risk that uh, inflation will start to ease faster than we have anticipated. I think that is a lesser risk and is a good risk to have. But this is where we need to keep flexible with respect to policy. We can't define a path right now and just stick to it. We've got to look at the data. And to me, primarily, it's the inflation data. Can we keep building on that then, just on the inflation front? Do you need to see deceleration into March? Is persistence enough to worry if it persisted at this level? Would Uh, that worry you enough? Which one would it be? Sure. I mean, I think persistence would uh, worry me, continue to worry me. And that's why I'd like to see some signs, whether it's actually in the inflation numbers themselves, or as I said, in the precursors to inflation, that we're starting to see some easing of the pressures on wages or the supply chain constraints, et cetera. What would you be looking for, President Harker, to possibly go 50 basis points? You said that, you know, should we? Mm, that's less clear. Could we? Sure, absolutely. What kind of inflation read? I think we're looking at a fairly significant spike from where we are now on inflation. If inflation stays where it is right now and continues to start to come down, I don't see a 50 basis point increase. But if we see a spike, then I think we might have to act more aggressively. Are you concerned about the possibility of a hard landing being dismissed by a lot of Fed officials as probably uh, unlikely and this sort of confidence that they can engineer this? Look, it's always a risk. I mean, let's be clear. It's always a risk. But I think we we actually can do this if we really listen to the data and and act appropriately. And again, my first step in acting appropriately is March. Stop the paper, stop the balance sheet purchases and let's start raising rates by 25 basis points. You, uh, in 2020, adopted a new framework which made you state-dependent in terms of moving interest rates. Is that out the window now? Are we back to forecast-dependent since policy works with a lag? Well, there's always you always have to take that into account. But I think in this case, if you just look at the states of our dual mandate, we're there. And so we need to act. I mean, I don't... With respect to employment, this is one of my pet peeves. Look, we're probably going to have a bad jobs report in, in in the end of this week. I mean, just because of Omicron. I mean, it's just simply because of Omicron. That said, I mean, and, and the media will say, and I'm not criticizing the media here, but it'll say the economy only created X number of jobs. No, the economy has created millions of jobs. We just can't fill them. It's a supply constraint. And that is not what monetary policy affects. So I think with respect to employment and with respect to inflation, we are there at our dual mandate, and that's why we need to act. Well, let me ask you the question I asked uh, Chairman Powell, and that is, what is your goal in terms of the inflation rate? It was understood that you were trying to average 2% over time, but he told me you're not trying to go below 2%, which you would have to do to get an average. Yeah, I mean, at some point we'll go below 2% would be our guess, but we don't have to rush it. I mean, if we can get it in the ballpark, 
that's good enough. I mean, right, the, the measurement error is sufficient where if it's slightly above or below 2%, two and a half to one and a half, I worry less. Right now, where we are, it is clearly a problem. President Harker, I want to try and move the dial on the balance sheet conversation because we really don't have much clarity. And some banks on Wall Street are throwing out some pretty big numbers. Matt Lazzetti at Deutsche Bank is talking about $1 trillion of reduction next year, $560 billion in the back half. You're at about four hikes for 2022. How does the balance sheet conversation influence that decision? Is it separate to your rate hike call? Does it complement it? How does it fit in? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in my mind, we have to reassert that the Fed funds rate is the primary tool of monetary policy. But recognizing that the balance sheet clearly has an effect that adds or, or removes accommodation. So I would like to get the Fed funds rate up and then start a process of normalization that is like watching paint dry. That is, put it in motion, start reducing it. That reduction will be faster and steeper than the last time we tried it, until, of course, all this happened. And just because the balance sheet is so much larger. But we put that in process. We start reducing the size of the balance sheet and use the Fed funds as the tool that we need to adjust if we need to adjust. No question about that. Do you think that you will need to sell assets to get the balance sheet down, particularly on the mortgage side, since the Fed says it wants to hold primarily treasuries and you'll be stuck with mortgages for 30 years if you don't? Yeah, maybe. I mean, this is something we're actively looking at right now. No decisions have been made uh, on the balance sheet question. It is one where we're going to take our time. We have some time here right now to think about it, to, to model it. Um, could, could we sell assets? Possibly. But right now, I wouldn't commit to any of that until I see the analysis. President Hunker, just finally from me, do you have a number in mind when you think about balance sheet reduction on a monthly basis, one that would make sense? Can you give us some insight into your real time thinking about this? Yeah. Yeah, not yet. I mean, I think we have to let that play out, like I said, the analysis. And what matters to me more right now is that we're committed to doing it and that we're going to commit to doing this for the long run. That is, it's going to take some time. Uh, to get balance sheet back to whatever normal is. And I know there's an argument about what normal is, and there should be an argument about what normal is, because we're not the economy we were before we came into the pandemic. So I can't put a precise number on it, Yeah. but I think what matters now is that we are committed, I can say I am committed, to making sure that we start this process, possibly later this year or early in 23, and then let it run to get back to normal. This is a real-time conversation. You guys are looking for tons of flexibility. Patrick Harker, just a final one from me. Are you satisfied with how the market is discounting some of the communication coming out of the central bank right now? You know, the markets will, will interpret what we say, uh, how they want to interpret it. And I think we can be as clear as we can be, at least I'm trying to be as clear as I can be, where I think policy should go. And I think it's really important that the market participants are seeing the same data we're seeing. We're not seeing anything different than what they're saying. It's all a question of interpretation. And that we can, we can disagree on. But uh, at this point, we need to let the data play out. President Harker of the Philadelphia Fed. Fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Thank you very much for being with us. Alongside Michael McKee, Tom Keane, Lisa Brambis and Jonathan Farrow. Alicia Levine with us, head of equities, capital market advisory at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Alicia, what do you see in the corporate space that will inform the Fed of the tough decisions they have to make? 
Look, the really interesting thing about earnings season so far is that with all the concern about margins and inflationary pressures, actually margins have held up very well in the face of, of input costs going higher and employee costs going higher. So that's an important thing because that's what the market's focused on, which is, is the inflation out of control and what will earnings be? Can we project earnings with inflation this high? And the answer so far is yes. And I think that's why you've seen some stabilization in the markets, because the fundamentals are actually coming in better than feared two and three weeks ago. So corporate America is telling you it's still okay. Um, I was shocked to see the margin number in the aggregate and, and the companies already reported. So that's, that's what's stabilizing here. And the other thing is, let me paint an interesting scenario for you. So we're all concerned about Russia, Ukraine and oil prices and have, having $120 oil sort of destabilize markets. Well, what if it's done, right? What if, we, what if the West says, you know what? We're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO. Putin gets what he wants without, you know, uh, blood and treasure being wasted. And oil all of a sudden has a different kind of, of, of price. And if that's the case, then I think the big shock worry to the market is over. And I think that's a very realistic scenario. I'm just going through your sector breakdown. Some of the style calls, just the mm -hmm. thematic calls as well. Buy business capital spending, cautious on the consumer. Buy profitable tech, buy industrials, buy healthcare, buy financials. Where's the energy piece in all this then, Alicia? So we like energy here. We just think that there's been a huge price shift upwards so far. And with the calls in the market for 120 to even $150 oil price, I think I think that given the scenario, it, it may not happen. And we may be close to highs. We're not there yet. There's still upward pressure on oil prices here. But I think many of those, many of much of the move is already done. We like energy, we're strong energy, but if we're talking about adding new capital today, I wouldn't add new capital today simply because the move is over. And this expectations for World War III in Europe are probably not gonna happen. Alicia, the, the, the scenario that you're portraying isn't that optimistic. The idea that we're gonna have uh, lower long-term run rates in terms of yields, that we have the priced in Fed, uh, that we have oil prices that are gonna come back down and the margin story remains intact, even as you see wage inflation really raging, I wonder how much cost cutting, how much where this really indicates a later cycle type of stage rather than something uh, that is a resurgent economy. So look, we do think we're, we're mid cycle here. And as you've been talking about all morning, this is dancing on the head of a pin for the Fed. It's a dynamic economy. It's not linear. These are not linear decisions. But I think the yield curve has told us a lot in the last few weeks, which is as rate expectations go higher for the Fed funds rate and that two-year moves higher, the 10-year softens. And so we're now in a position where essentially if the Fed moved 50 basis points in March, which is not our base case scenario, you're going to destabilize rates pricing in the market. And that's the last thing the Fed needs to do right now because it limits their hands uh, on the on the out meetings. So we do think you'll get Fed hikes uh, March, May and June. And then we the Fed will have to reassess where we are in the real economy. I think the Fed's 
issue here is not so much slowing the economy. Its job is to slow the economy right now because we're frying in oil. It cannot do anything about the supply chain. It can do something about demand. So that is its job right now to soften the inflation picture because that's its mandate. And if it fails at that at, at the mandate, that tends that's not going to be good for the institution. Alicia, so just quickly, at inflation. Yeah. I want to squeeze this in. Where does that leave the bank's trade? So look, we we like financials. We prefer the insurance companies here because the insurance companies will do very well. Again, financials have moved strongly. We've seen some of the pricing issues. We think this is the year for be selective. I think it's very difficult to play the sectors. You have to play cash flow. You have to play earnings. And, and you can't just buy. I think the year of, of buying an index or buying a sector call is going to be very difficult. You have to buy individual companies here with dividends, cash flow, and earnings power. It's a very complicated year. Yes, we're still bullish. And we do think the Fed cannot go seven times this year. I just think the yield curve is telling them that. Alicia Levine of BNY Mellon, Wealth Management. Alicia, thank you. Uh, this is a joy. We begin a two-hour conversation with Douglas Cass of Seabreeze here, <laughs> or it ought to be. Doug, let me start out with, on trading, how was your January? Uh, Seabreeze, which we just started, um, actually had a modestly up January, which I cool. think uh, pretty well differentiates us. Your, your, your note this morning is fascinating, and basically a lot of it's about being courageous when the fear is out there. How do you right. judge the when of that? When to be courageous given present fear? I tend to look um, at um, measures of sentiment. Um, um, uh, AAII investor survey, oversold, overbought, that sort of thing. Doug, late last year, mid to late last year on this program, you were notably, notably cautious slash bearish. Um, and this, the beginning of this year certainly, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I think kind of brought that to the fore here. Is it time to get more constructive on this equity markets from your perspective? Uh, we got a little more constructive, um, I would say, about um, two weeks ago. Okay. Uh, since then, the S&P has rallied. Um, by roughly um, 220 S&P points. I know it sounds astonishing. And um, uh, we're sort of doing an about-face now. We're taking advantage of that trading, uh, tradable trading opportunity, which I called it. And uh, I question whether we're in a bear market rally. Investors face uh, a number of dilemmas. Uh, as mentioned in the previous segment, uh, rates are being raised uh, into a slowing economy, uh, multiples, uh, compression, stag slugflation, sluggish growth, mm -hmm. sustained inflation, that's, and, that's hot, and heightened volatility seems to lie ahead. And I think the, the strike on the Fed put is much lower than many believe. So uh, it's my view that the odds favor that the rally over the last three days of January and into today may have been a bear market rally, um, but not likely the basis for a new bull market leg. Um, Yesterday, I sent um, Paul, Tom, Lisa, John um, an important chart that I published on Real Money Pro, where I've been doing a blog for 24 years, and it's the NASDAQ index. It has cut through the downside of the 50, 100, and 200-day moving averages, yep. and even with the remarkable two-day rally, is only back approaching the resistance of the 200-day. 
So unfortunately, I suspect January's uh, market weakness was the first shot across the bow, and 2022 is going to be a down year for equities. How deep is it's obviously uncertain. So what are you doing with, with your capital? You mentioned your, your hedge fund. What are you doing with your capital? Are there places to be uh, in this market in a rising interest rate environment in a, in a slowing economy? We have basically moved from a net long position, um, and I didn't expect to do it this quickly, Paul. Uh, but um, we take what the market gives us. Um, a walk is as good as a hit, Tom. Yep. And um, by the way, 13 days to pitchers and catchers. Thank you. And Thank the you. majesty and grace of <laughs> Are they, they going to show up? Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good question. So there are pockets of opportunity. I have a large position in the cannabis stocks. Um, most of our stocks that we're long are uh, bottom-up stocks um, based upon a bottom-up analysis. Companies like Citigroup, Federal Express, an interesting biotech company, Fibrogen, etc. But on on the whole, um, I think that the um, the winds of change are growing stronger, and yeah. that, um, that that there are problems. I think that the Fed is clearly committed to fighting inflation. I was listening right. to the interesting. Fed Reserve President um, interview you had, um, and we're moving into tighter financial con- conditions. And I don't believe uh, um, many, uh, especially the bullish cabal, cabal, believe that Powell will be very yeah. hawkish, and I disagree. Um, I'm convinced he's going to stick to his mandates. Um, you know, the Fed and its chairman have become very politicized, and Powell is now effectively part of a liberal administration which is justifiably concerned with social well-being for our citizens. He, you listen to any interview that Secretary Yelling gives, you see that clearly. Um, they've continually emphasized recently the pain that the lower class is, is going through today and over the last couple of years. So he must beat inflation at any cost, and that political viewpoint will likely be matched yeah. in a more hawkish uh, policy, and I don't yeah. think this is being understood by many investors. <laughs> Doug, I, I want to talk about the charm of Douglas Cass trading and also writing consistently about big tech as a long-term vehicle. And you've led that with, I believe, a discussion on Amazon as well. Amazon, yeah. We saw Microsoft deliver. We saw Apple deliver. Jim Suva's 20 pages on Apple three or four days ago, is a, whether you believe it or not, is a tour de force of looking out five years. How do you treat for, fortress or moat tech, as Ben Laidler calls it. <laughs> How do you treat them out five years when the Montreal Canadiens finally get good again? It's really tough because the uh, risk-free rate of return, because of tightening, um, you know, yeah. because of the Federal Reserve tightening, uh, produces a lower value to present value of their earnings. So the opportunity short-term becomes a, b- a little bit mooted, but you asked about the long-term. And it is remarkable to also use Warren Buffett's term of a moat. Their competitive moats of Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Apple simply get deeper and deeper and are not penetrable anymore. Um, I used to be concerned, uh, Paul and Tom, about the uh, existential threat of um, regulation. But frankly, any regulation would benefit them because none of the smaller companies or uh, you know, medium-sized companies – uh, can uh, afford the regulation. Doug, we're going to have uh, Google report earnings after the close. How do you think about some of those, boy, those mega tech stocks, the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles, of the world that have been so, such good performers for so many investors for such a long period of time? 
How do, how do you think about those over the next couple of years? Uh, as, you, know, you mentioned the moat issue, and you certainly hear people talk about moats when they talk about those names. Sure. What I try to do is identify which, which companies um, um, are attractive on a longer-term basis, uh, create a core position, and then um, try to successfully and unsuccessfully trade around the core position, yep. and that's what I do. Yep. Um, now yep. is not the time at the margin to buy the stocks. <laughs> I am long Amazon and Google, and I bought them well. And I sold Amazon especially well. Um, but, you know, the Federal Reserve, as I said, is, yeah. is, is dancing on the head of a pin and tightens and it's tightening yeah. into the latter stage of an economic recovery. And you guys right. have been talking about uh, cost savings. Um, a lot of companies are going to continue to cut costs, but we're going to have a steady drum of goods and wage inflation um, uh, exacerbated, I think, by persistent and sustained supply change disruptions, yeah. and it's going to eat into corporate revenues and profits for, for the, what I call the Nifty Seven, you know, um, yep. uh, Fang Plus, right. um, uh, Nvidia, etc. And um, <clears throat> so I think we're in a problematic environment. It's funny how guys price changes sentiment. Four days ago, everyone was um, that uh, right. besides themselves, yeah. negative, raising cash. And now the S&P has risen by 240 points, and they're getting a bullion. And I think that optimism is as misplaced as a pessimism yeah. was a week ago. <clears throat> and I think that also yeah. I'll conclude by saying there are bad habits on the parts of many retail and institutional investors over the last couple of years. And I think they're going to continue to be challenged and rapidly replaced by wisdom, right. a sense of his, history and common sense, mm. traits yeah. that have lost their relevance but are likely to regain popularity in the months ahead. So I see a trying okay. environment. Doug, we got to leave it there. We're out of time. Doug Cass with us with Seabreeze. This is a joy. Sebastian Malaby is eclectic, to say the least, with the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior fellow. You know him from work on Mr. Greenspan work on the hedge fund industry. And now he is tackled in a must-read book for this summer. If you're part of Global Wall Street and you feel as ignorant as I do, then you must address Sebastian Malaby and the new and important The Power Law with a beautiful yellow cover. You can't miss this at Amazon or at your local bookstore. On venture capital and the making of our new future. Sebastian, congratulations again for providing clarity on something mysterious. When you started this project, what was the biggest mystery for you of this strange phrase, venture capital? The biggest mystery, Tom, was how do you even begin to allocate capital when you are dealing with startups? There are no quantitative guiding guidelines. You can't like discount the future cash flow because there's no cash flow. You can't do book to value because there's no book value. All you have is two-legged mammals walking into your office with a dream. Um, so just that sheer lack of guidepost, intellectual blank sheet, that's what drew me into the subject. What I find fascinating is from the beginnings, and you cover so well Kleiner Perkins and all of it and the stereotypes we all hold, out to the present day and say SoftBank, and you touch on that later in the, the book as well, his venture capital then even remotely the same as venture capital now is represented by SoftBank? Well, SoftBank is a special, special case. And Masayoshi Son is a special, special person, right? I mean, he uh, has such 
a willingness to take crazy risk. And he blew himself up in the Nasdaq uh, collapse, but at the same time, he'd just taken that position in Alibaba, which went from 20 million in 2000 to uh, 58 billion, <laughs> yeah, 14 years later. So I think he's sort of a case unto himself. Maybe the question is like Tiger Global, right? That kind of growth equity investing, which didn't exist uh, maybe 15 years ago, has now become front and center. And that is a new departure for venture capital. Sebastian, it seems like a lot of money has been flooding into venture capital with the promise that you outlined that even if a lot of the investments that you make are duds, there will be a couple real shining stars that absolutely are torpedoed to the top. Is it different now to find those? Is it harder to find those at a time when the behemoths of the world, I'm thinking the Googles, the uh, the Facebooks, et cetera, are buying up so many startups before they even get off the ground? Well, one of the cool things about this space is that when you're doing the really early stuff and you're writing a check for 5 million, 10 million, um, you're not going to get the, the big growth players involved in that. They, it just doesn't move the needle for them on their huge portfolios. So if you're doing the early stage stuff, you have a, a kind of timeline in your mind of five to seven years before your exit. Whether the stock market is up or down or sideways, what, you know, whatever happened to get interest rates, who the president might be, it doesn't matter. Um, so you can just basically look for what you think is going to be transformative technology. Yes, you will get it wrong most of the time because that's the nature of the business. It is a power law business, hence my title. Um, but, you know, you hope that you'll get one or two bets out of 10 will be exponentially right. And that will more than make up your whole portfolio. Sebastian, a lot of people are talking about the productivity gap in the United States and in the modern world. And basically, we are not seeing a huge productivity boom. And they say, well, this could potentially change if there's some massive technological shift. Based on your conversations with venture capitalists, do you see that possibility percolating right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the stuff about productivity uh, being down is, is partially a measurement issue when goods are priced at zero as they are with Google search, for example. Uh, it doesn't show up in the productivity numbers. Um, and I think that, you know, if you just turn the question around and say, how much do you think your life has changed in the last 20 years? How do you collect information? How do you think? How do you arrive at quiet epiphanies? All these things are fundamentally different. So I have a hard time mm. swallowing this idea that there's been no innovation to speak of in the last couple of decades. I think, I think there really has been. At the end of the book, Sebastian, you have Josh Lerner of HBS, and he's talking about a boulevard of broken dreams. And the huge modern question is it was a small group of people associated with San Francisco and Stanford, and it's expanded out to where we want retail individuals and others to take part in venture capital. I don't understand how the little guy takes advantage of the power law. How do they? I think they don't is the honest answer. One Thank of the you. troubling things about the private investing world is that it's it's a game for people who are hands-on. They're on the board of the company. They are super involved. They're pretty expert. They understand what the company's making. They have an engineering degree. This is not for amateurs. Um, and so mm. I think this private hands-on venture capital type of investment is key to the, prog the progress of the, you know, an economy where you have a lot of intangible capital. You know, we used to have capital goods that you could drop on your foot. Now it's services. It's I mean, it's, it's knowledge, it's software, it's intangible. We need the venture capital, but unfortunately, the little guy can't participate. 
I've got 10 more questions. We don't have enough time. Sebastian Malaby, Council on Foreign Relations. The book is The Power Law, Venture Capital, The Making of the New Future. And what's important is even, and there's a lot of notes. It's not that intimidating, folks. On radio, it's a little bit thicker than normal. But all I can say is this will be the definitive Wall Street read this summer. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.